Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution, and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Top Docs Radio. Thank you for making us a part of your day today. I'm very pleased to have the, the guests that we have in the studio with us today. We're going to be talking a little bit about women's health needs, and uh, I'll be uh, just doing a quick introduction here with our guests to get them started. Uh, I have Dr. Lasagna Roberts-Lopez. Now, do you go by Dr. Dr. Roberts more, or how to, tell me how you say your name usually when you're introducing yourself. Dr. Lopez. Okay, Dr. Lopez. I knew you as Dr. Roberts back in the old days, I guess, when I first <laughs> met you. Um, but uh, you're, you're a gynecology at uh, the Kennestone campus in, uh, in Marietta. Yes. And uh, her colleague, Dr. Amy Carroll, who is gynecologic oncology or cancer doctor for, for the ladies. Yes, yes. Very, very pleased to have you all with us today, taking time out of your office to share some information with our listeners today. Very and glad to be here. Our Thank listeners you. tend to be a little bit of, uh, of both, both physician listeners as well as uh, obviously patients to be or folks that have loved ones that might be able to benefit from what you have to say. So, um, you know, we'll just get right, right down to it. When it comes down to uh, your gynecology, Dr. Lopez, um, tell me a little bit about, you know, who typically ends up being the patient for you in your office? Okay, just to start off, um, just to educate some women who may not be familiar, your gynecology is actually one of the newest board-certified subspecialties under the OBGYN umbrella. So most of my patients are patients who come in with benign gynecologic issues as well as female urologic issues. Um, a typical patient um, it may be someone who's referred in by their primary care doctor or their gynecologist who may have issues with uh, urinary incontinence, some type of pelvic organ prolapse, pelvic pain. Those are the um, three most common um, conditions that I manage. So you did your training in school. Your initial training, your focus training was in OBGYN, and then you subspecialized further into the urology side of things. That, yes, that, I did a fellowship. Right? And the same holds true for you, Dr. Carroll. You, you've studied your, your residency was in oncology or OBGYN, and then you subspecialized into oncology. Is that right? Correct. Okay, so so for the woman who's trying to decide what sort of specialist should I see for this, I mean, obviously, you're going to be excellent choices just because your, your training focused on the female patient in particular, so they're going to be able to bring you know, that extra layer of understanding about what they're dealing with just because that, that's who you train to, to treat every day, not just men as well. So that's, that's great for someone to know. And so when you were talking about your uh, urology patients that, that come to you, can you talk a little bit about what tends to cause the type of problems that you were discussing? You were talking about some incontinence issues. I would assume some of that has to do with pregnancy and things like that. But uh, talk a little bit about what, what brings those things on. Absolutely. Um, most of the patients, they don't have necessarily just one etiologic factor that can put them at risk for having urinary incontinence. It's usually a combination of things. But the most common um, reasons why women develop incontinence is childbirth. Um, women who've had multiple children, um, even if a woman has had a prolonged stage of labor and they ended up with a C-section, 
um, just going through that process could damage some of the musculature, um, some of the nerves that can lead to urinary incontinence. Um, patients who've had previous surgeries, whether it's a hysterectomy or some type of pelvic um, surgery, it can lead to incontinence issues. Um, there are patients who have, may have other comorbid conditions like diabetes, for example. We know that diab diabetics, they develop neuropathies mm -hmm. um, and all the time physicians send them to podiatry for preventative measures. Well, those same patients can have some type of neurologic derangement um, that can lead to some type of bladder instability and bladder problems. I, I didn't, yeah. I was never aware of that. I mean, obviously, you know, we work a lot with podiatry and we talk yeah. very much about, you know, preventive uh, measures for mm -hmm. the uh, diabetic foot, but I, I was completely unaware. Not that I know everything, but I think that's <laughs> excellent information out there okay. for somebody to know that if they are diabetic, that they may be uh, have some value in linking up with a, a physician such as yourself to either offset, you know, or prevent potentially, can it be prevented? Um, usually the best way in those type patients to prevent is to make sure their blood glucose Just is under their control. Get their A1C under right. control. Okay. Their hemoglobin A1C is under control. Now, when you're, when you're dealing with, say, say a, a lady has had a, you know, a child or two in the past, and now they're dealing with a little bit of urinary incontinence, I mean, are there procedures or things that you can do that would actually help improve that other than just having to change what you wear to try to deal with the problem? Oh, absolutely. Um, I try to tell my patients that what I do is try to improve their quality of life. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure a quality that's quite of stressful. Life. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure yes. it's very stressful and disruptive in yeah. their daily life when they're having to deal yeah. with that. So usually there is a range of things we could do. I try to always start with conservative approaches, especially in patients who may have minimal symptoms or um, are younger patients and they don't know if they want to have more children. You want to try to, if you can, avoid any type of surgical intervention because that recurrent pregnancy can actually um, cause the incontinence to happen again. And then what I tell patients is usually the first attempt at a surgical approach is your best attempt at cure. Once you start having repeat surgeries, mm -hmm. your chance of cure diminishes. Um, and then that percentage is going to be, you know, variable, obviously, depending on what other things are going on with that patient. But something as basic as physical therapy and the thing that some patients get um, they're unaware of or they get confused about they just say oh I can do Kegel exercises they'll go on online and you know see something on the website and they try to do these exercises at home well the therapists that we use are specifically women's health certified and they give more direction than just Kegel exercises there may be some abdominal exercises they have to do some thigh exercises it's a combination because I don't think they understand the intricacies of our anatomy and how these muscles interact with one another so it's very detailed and it takes a lot of due diligence on the patient's part but there are other non-surgical ways that we can treat incontinence and patients don't have to just live with it um, just because it's minimal or just because they're younger and don't want to have surgery. I would so. imagine that there's probably a lot of ladies out there that think that that's the case, that this is, I had a child or two and, you know, my mom had problems with, now I have this problem and, and don't even really think about the fact that they might actually have something potentially even non-surgical that could get them relief for this and they can kind of get their life back. Absolutely. And again, too, it all depends on what type of incontinence that they have. You know, there are different types. You know, if they have what's called urge incontinence, that's more of like an overactive bladder. That I got to go right now. I have to go right now. Or they see when they look at the um, 
the signs on the highway instead of it saying exit 10, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 17th Street, it'll just say bathroom to them. They're just looking for the uh, closest bathroom. Anyhow, those patients are typically managed by dietary changes, maybe some medications. Now there is a new FDA approval for Botox injections for the bladder. Wow, they're using yeah. Botox to do all kinds Botox. of things. Botox. Can Headaches you believe it? Even. I mean, Absolutely. Wow. We have um, bladder um, neuromodulators. <laughs> I call them like a bladder pacemaker. So the the range of options are extensive. So the the one thing that I want to get out to the listeners is that you do not have to live with this and that whenever you see a physician, make sure they explore options. There's no one quick fix for all patients. You know, mm-hmm. it depends on the patient, their symptoms, their desires, where they are in their lives, you know, how it affects their quality of life. And um, you collectively can make a decision that's appropriate for that patient. And so you think, particularly if someone's young and may be thinking about the possibilities of having a child again, and they go to somebody and maybe they're not fortunate enough to to come to your office straight away. Um, But if someone starts talking surgery to that, you know, maybe young childbearing age woman, you you might recommend talking to somebody else just to see if there's not something that's non-surgical that might be able to get me at least relief or improvement, if not resolution without it. second and third opinions, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, I I always tell patients probably other than with Amy's um, subspecialty, it's a little different, right? Because they're they're coming in with different situations. But like I said, for myself, it's more of a quality of life and they always have options. Mm You always have options. Like, don't ever feel that you have to do something that's very invasive, although those things work very well. But there may be some people who haven't resolved that they want to go that direction. But for for you, Amy, yeah. it's a different situation. Well, yes. I mean, my patients are a little bit more limited uh, in their, you know, second and third opinions and, and, um, and their options. Because usually, you know, they're coming to us with a a diagnosis of cancer or a concern for cancer. And so, you know, a delay uh, in surgery or a delay in the initiation of treatment, of course, will affect their overall prognosis and survival. Um, But I, uh, you know, I always give people the option if they're, you know, the least bit uncertain or concerned about the diagnosis and not absolutely sure that, that what I'm proposing is the path that they want to go uh, they always have other, um, there are, you know, many other oncologists to talk to in the city uh, that we can try to facilitate getting them in with uh, for second and third opinions. Obviously, mm-hmm. you're part of a pretty large group um, as part of your practice, so I'm sure there's some resources that you can turn to within the group to, you know, to bounce things off of. That's a nice resource for you to be a part of that. Yes, Absolutely. With with your with your practice, I mean, would would both would both of you be physicians that are receiving patients coming to you from primary care pretty heavily, or you know, where did where did the patients that come to you typically come very to you from? Comparable, wouldn't you say? Family yeah. practice and gynecologists. Yes, most uh, uh, most of our oncology patients come from OBGYNs, uh, people who have already done a biopsy uh, that has already diagnosed cancer, or they've already done imaging studies that shows an abnormality. And then they send them on to us. Family practice also occasionally sends patients. Yeah. Now, with you, Dr. Carroll, with um, you know your your patients who are coming to you with a with a potential cancer or one that's been diagnosed, is there kind of a are there several types that you're typically are seeing in your office that 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 you're facing most of the time? Well, um, in gynecologic oncology, we treat cancers of the vulva, vagina, cervix, uterus, fallopian tube, ovary, and peritoneum. So it's a, it's a lot of different cancers, and within each one of those, there are different subtypes. 
Uh, so, you know, every one, of course, is, is a little bit different uh, in both their prognosis and the treatment. So um, it really depends on, you know, the pathology. That's, that's the most important thing in our field. Tissue is the issue. <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice saying. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and I would presume, um, without, you know, knowing more myself, I'll ask you, with, with breast cancer, for example, it's, you know, very much about trying to find it early, um, screening for it. Tell me, you know, for the listener out there who, you know, otherwise they're, they're healthy, they don't really have anything going on that they're aware of. Obviously, there's got to be a point in time where that patient you know, would be discovered on an early test of some sort. So can you talk a little bit about what kind of screening that uh, that you would recommend for a woman to make sure she's staying current and yes. finding things early? Well, you know, um, yes, with any cancer, I mean, the earlier, the better. The, the earlier stage of diagnosis, the better prognosis. Um, but the, the number one thing is getting yearly evaluations, yearly well woman exams. A lot of women, you know, who have already had a hysterectomy think, oh, I don't need a pap smear, I don't need to come in anymore. But they still need a yearly well woman exam because nobody, nobody is looking at their vulva and vagina and, you know, where the, where the cervix once was. And uh, no one is feeling in the pelvis, making sure they feel the ovaries, they're not feeling a mass. And those are the most important things as far as prevention goes. And, of course, pap smears are the best thing we have uh, for prevention of cervix cancer. Uh, pap smears are, are very important. And most people who have uh, advanced cervix cancers are people who have not had pap smears in years to decades. Uh, and, you know, the pap screening um, changes on a very regular basis, the recommendations on pap screening. Um, and right now it's still a moving target. But for the most part, you know, if they get adequate screening, their likelihood of having a cervix cancer diagnosed early, of course, is much better than having a late diagnosis. Now, you know, when would you advise, you know, is there, you know, I, I'm sure a woman needs to go and be seen, you know, on an annual basis. But, I mean, is there kind of a, a time and age where you really kind of want to be sure that you're certainly going with regularity? I mean, for men, you start talking about when you start getting around 50 for the prostate cancer exams and things like that. But does it hold true kind of in the similar age ranges for the ladies with regards to when they might see, you know, a greater risk for uh, a cancer of some sort developing that way? For most gynecologic cancers, uh, the older uh, a patient is, the higher their likelihood is of having a cancer. But that's not the case with all cancers. There are uh, many cervix cancers um, that are diagnosed in young women, even some uh, more rare ovarian tumors diagnosed in teenagers or, or women in their early 20s. Uh, re- really, any woman in their um, reproductive age and beyond needs to still get that yearly exam. Have there been studies out that relate to the vaccination that ladies can go to for HPV and its effect, uh, you know, in, in terms of reducing the rate of occurrence for, for ladies that are having uh, cervical cancer? Yes, I, I highly recommend the HPV vaccine for anyone who um, who qualifies for it. Uh, right now, um, women between the ages of 12 and 26 can get the vaccine. It is uh, very good at preventing uh, nearly all cervical cancers. Most cervical cancers are caused by two different HPV types, mm-hmm. and those types um, are included in the vaccine. There's uh, two different kinds of vaccines, and both of them will vaccinate against both of those HPV types. Uh, There's always a small chance of getting an infection with one of the high-risk or cancer-causing HPV types uh, that is not included in the vaccine, but the risk is lower, of course. I see. Mm-hmm. That's that's excellent information because I know that there's been some, you know, 
debate in the you know in the public arena as to whether or not uh, they should get it or or does it really work but i mean i i think that it's useful to hear straight from the the physician who's treating those patients that there is value in, in being able to get access to that and and is it just that you go to your physician and request that i suppose primary care or OBGYN, whatever the case may be to to obtain the vaccination for hpv yes you know pediatricians or OBGYNs. Um, you know, most of these uh, girls are still going to their pediatrician for their yearly exams, and so they need to definitely talk to their physician about it if the physician hasn't approached them. Um, you know, I there's a lot of debate, of course, of whether or not the HPV vaccine encourages people to be promiscuous. Yes, I think that's one of the reasons why it's been such a kind of a controversial issue is they feel like it's, you know, somehow encouraging that activity. But. Yes, and, and, you know, there was one large study that actually looked at um, the the age of um, first sexual intercourse in women who have had the vaccine and those who have had, have not, and there was no difference in age. Uh, I, I think it's a moot point. I, I think anything that can uh, prevent cancer is, is worthwhile. And I think the earlier and younger you can give it, the better. Because HPV is not only transmitted by sexual contact, by genital-to-genital contact. It can be transmitted by oral-to-genital contact or even hand-to-genital contact. Any sort of uh, genital contact can transmit the virus. Condoms don't protect against it. So, you know, I highly recommend uh, the HPV virus for young women. Some excellent information from Dr. Amy Carroll and Dr. Lasagna Roberts-Lopez, um, two ladies that are focused on women's health issues from the uh, Wellstar Physicians Group. And, and so, Dr. Lopez, tell me a little bit more about some of the folks that would be coming to you. Obviously, we talked a little bit about the patient who's had some um, incontinence issues, whether it's related to childbirth or, or, or other issues that they're, they're dealing with, like diabetes. But uh, what else might, might uh, someone come to you for? Because I know, like, for example, a woman who has had um, hysterectomy, for example, may have some issues relating to prolapse of the, of the organ. So talk to, a little bit about the things that you can provide for that patient. Absolutely. I um, coin myself as the gatekeeper of the pelvis. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anything that's dealing with the lower um, urinary genital tract, um, female reproductive system, even the... Um, the distal rectum or GI tract, as well as the musculature. I think a lot of people in general are just not familiar with the anatomy and just and don't realize how intricate those organ systems are. So I'll have patients that I don't, not only complain of incontinence issues, but maybe they have a difficulty emptying their bladder. Um, maybe they have a problems. Like I said, they'll say, hey, you know, I, I went to the restroom. I felt something a little different. Um, you know, I used the mirror and said, you know, I don't know what that is. That could be a prolapse problem. Or maybe they've gone to their gynecologist or primary doctor who may or may not be familiar with prolapse and just say, hey, your bladder has dropped. Women just need to be educated and know that there are different types of prolapse. It's not just a bladder drop. Even after a hysterectomy, you can have a prolapse. Um, these are considered hernias um, of the vagina. Actually, there's only one true hernia that we call um, uh, interocele, and that just means that basically Basically, the um, contents of the peritoneum, which includes your bowel, can actually herniate through the vagina. And some women don't know that. And that could create a problem if it's not handled um, either conservatively or surgically. And those are things that you would see, I guess, more often in women that have had... A, a hysterectomy 
particularly with a total hysterectomy, but just hysterectomy just because it changes. All of that is tied together by connective tissue that kind of holds everything in place, so it's disrupting the framework that's kind of kept everything in place before that. So now we've got to make some changes. But, you know, I've had a few patients um, who actually has never had children or surgery, and they have prolapse, and it just means that they have a genetic susceptibility. Now, at this time, we don't have any type of genetic screening test to say, hey, you know, what kind of collagen makeup do you have that's going to increase your risk of prolapse? But there are a multitude of things that contribute to this prolapse issue. Um, Patients who may have a higher BMI, um, patients who have um, chronic lung disease and they cough all the time. Oh, okay. Patients who have um, bowel dysfunction, they have a hard time evacuating their stool, so, so they're, they're straining. Strain, yeah. Right. And what I try to express to patients and their families is that the support mechanism that suspend these organs or, or provide support, I kind of give the analogy of a hammock. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, have these... Um, uh, the fat we call it fascia they anchor to the our pelvic bones on both sides and if you have a pressure that um, is within normal limits then that hammock will sag but still support but once you go over that pressure threshold it's going to rip and that's where you get the sagging and it's different types of areas where the fascia can detach and cause different types of prolapse so they they have to be assessed properly in order to create an appropriate treatment plan for them um, in addition to the prolapse issues Patients may come in and say, you know, um, when I engage in sexual intercourse with my partner, I have a lot of discomfort or I have low back pain. And, um, you know, people just think, oh, it's a disc problem or something like that. They could have pelvic floor spasms the same way you can get a charley horse in your leg or spasm in your neck. You can get pelvic floor spasms. And we treat that with physical therapy and maybe muscle relaxants. We have different approaches to treat that. Um, All those conditions fall under the realm of what I treat, Um, even fecal incontinence I manage. Um, In Amy's case, she has patients that will get pelvic radiation therapy, um, and I get referrals from GYN oncologists, um, you know, where their patients have radiation cystitis. They may see, and it, it could be immediate. Sometimes it's, you know, it could be a year or so out because the way it works is that it destroys the blood vessels, the microvasculature to those organs, and then it creates some type of issue right. where the, the the bladder becomes hypoxic, basically. And the earlier you intervene, the better. And, you know, we've used hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I've treated those patients like um, IC or interstitial cystitis patients where we try to rebuild the bladder lining and, you know, um, do some things to um, alleviate their symptoms. So there is a multitude, there are a multitude of conditions that I treat, again, if you think of anything that could possibly go wrong below the belly button. <laughs> well, I think, that it's, I think that that's, you know, important for folks to understand is that uh, so many times there's issues that you wouldn't necessarily even think about. For example, you know, HPV, I think everybody historically before the vaccine came out, I mean, I think more often than not, the common general public thought about HPV simply as a sexually transmitted disease rather than tying it to the fact that it underpins, you know, the lion's share, if not all, of the cervical cancers that occur. And, you know, now to 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 be able to come to the public and say, hey, there's this vaccination out here that would prevent that type of cancer, I think that people just really kind of try to focus on it as a sexually transmitted problem. But I, I think, you know, just like you're talking about, there's issues that people tend to just kind of deal with when they don't understand, you know, that you're here. 
and that uh, having access to a physician, whether you're an oncologist, uh, a patient with a potential cancer, there's obviously oncologists out there that would treat the full spectrum of oncology. But if, if I'm a woman and I'm dealing with these types of problems, then coming to a physician who is specially trained to care for me as a woman, a healthy woman, <laughs> and then subspecializing beyond that into the problems that I might face from a pathologic side, I think that's that's great to know about just because, you know, there's so many things that I, I'm surprised that people deal with that they could get some relief from, even without surgery, if they Absolutely. if they get to you mm -hmm. in, in time. So, I mean, from a from a screening perspective, I mean, is, outside of just having a problem, for example, you know, is there value for me if I'm a woman to being seen by a urologist such as yourself, a urogynecologist? Um, if I'm not having problems, do I need to have a problem to be seen by someone such as yourself, or is there a kind of a uh, a regular or semi-regular period of time that might be useful to be screened by someone such as yourself since some of these things could maybe be in place minor enough to not be hugely disruptive but you might have some solutions for them even without surgery that they you know didn't realize they had I think the key um, I know for sure for urogynecology and probably for oncology is that we educate the primary physicians because we are so subspecialized. Um, most of our patient base are referred into us when they do have a problem. If a patient, however, for me comes in for incontinence prolapse, you know, pain with intercourse or something like that, I do go over screening things um, as far as prevention for cancer. So I may have a patient who may come in, have have uterine prolapse, and we're planning to do a robotic um, procedure um, which is the Da Vinci procedure to remove the uterus and, and then do a suspension procedure for the prolapse. And then they're kind of in the middle. Should I, you know, take my ovaries out or not? And if they're postmenopausal, for some reason, women, you know, not that they become attached to their organs, but they have the idea that if I lose all of my um, reproductive organs, then I won't be as feminine or, right. you know, they identify with that as being a woman. And then I do give them the um, statistics on prevention for ovarian cancer that removing them decrease it by 99%. They're still at 1% because of peritoneal cancer. And I tell them of all the cancers that ovarian cancer is the only one that doesn't have a good screening tool. And, you know, by the time it's diagnosed, it could be late stage. So I do talk to them about that. Even in my patients who I worry about having some type of cervical um, dysplasia or cervical cancer issue, we talk, I make sure they have, you know, pap smears. I ask them if they have a history of abnormal paps. So they'll know they need to continue um, to get those as well as their bimanual exam. So for me, the screening... Um, process usually comes in place when I'm treating another issue. Um, usually that's going to occur with their primary care physician or their gynecologist. And so when it comes to the specific issues that we have, I think that those referring physicians, they have a general baseline to say, hey, you know, this is something that's going on. You know, we've been watching this for about a year. It's not getting better. Maybe we need to send you to um, a specialist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is, just, is the same true for you, Dr. Carroll, where most of the patients that you see are coming to you somewhat either with a, a preliminary diagnosis or a definite diagnosis in hand more than screening? Yes, absolutely. You know, um, nearly all of my patients have had some sort of abnormality detected uh, either on imaging or screening studies. And, um, you know, at that point, you know, we certainly talk about uh, risk reduction and, and prevention of other kinds of um, problems based on what my uh, treatment recommendations are. 
but but nearly all of them come from a, a referring physician. And I have had patients, you know, who who don't have cancer, but or uh, but maybe have a genetic susceptibility towards cancer, or they have a family history of cancer, uh, and and want more information about how they can you know improve their um, their likelihood of never having those kinds of cancer. And, um, you know, I happily see those patients, but in general, they're all referred from other people. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Dr. Amy Carroll and Dr. Lasagna Roberts-Lopez of Wellstar Physicians Group that focus on urogynecology and gynecologic oncology. And with you, Dr. Carroll, on the oncology side of things, are there some tests that I could get to just purely screen? I don't have anything going on and I want to catch it early as I can. Are there things that you do in the office to, to help me be the person that you catch it early, you know, straight away? If I don't, if I don't want to come to you once I've had the problem already, yeah. that you can do some screening for me, maybe head the, things off. The very first step is, is always a physical exam, uh, a history and physical exam. Uh, uh, ovarian cancer, you know, is kind of the dreaded gynecologic cancer because there are so few signs and symptoms when it is diagnosed, it's usually diagnosed at an advanced stage. Uh, sometimes it's something that their uh, primary care doctor or their OBGYN has felt on exam, felt mm-hmm. a mass within the pelvis. Uh, but more often, it's uh, symptoms of uh, bloating, nausea, um, and pain that, that won't go away that has developed over the last few weeks um, that in- initiates their, uh, their follow-up. Uh, so that's the, the more difficult one. And unfortunately, there's not any good screening for ovarian cancer. You just have to feel it, I guess. Right. Or well, see it on a you have ultrasound to or something like that. Yeah, you have yeah. to suspect something. Uh, because there was a big study uh, called the PLCO study where um, they tried to look at screening for prostate, lung, uh, colon, and ovarian cancers. And they did um, ultrasounds and tumor markers on women every six months to try to detect ovarian cancer before it happened. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, uh, there were no women who were um, diagnosed at an earlier stage. They were all diagnosed still at age at uh, stage three, um, you know, just like the general population. Because in general, most of the time, we think that we don't know what the precursor is for ovarian cancer, so it's really hard to screen for something you don't know what you're looking for. Now, with ovarian cancer, is it, um, or just with the other gynecologic oncologies down, you know, in the abdomen Mm -hmm. and pelvis, how how much of a genetic component is there? If mom or my you know relative has has dealt with a, an oncology issue in the pelvis, how how, how likely am I to have problems? Well, um, of course there there are certain um, genetic syndromes like BRCA mutations or Lynch syndrome that can predispose you towards ovarian cancer. Uh, but uh, for the most part, it may be a family member, a first degree or second degree family member who's had ovarian cancer or, you know, a strong family history of breast and ovarian cancer that puts somebody at a higher risk. Um, and, of course, age is also the, the, the next most important uh, risk factor for developing ovarian cancer. What's the f- point on, a, on the age spectrum where you really begin to see your, you know, rise in risk for ovarian cancer? Um, really, it's just after the early 50s, so around 52, 53. Um, and, and I always joke, you know, I can almost look at somebody's age and, and when they're coming to me with an ovarian mass and say whether or not they have cancer. Um, and, you know, it's not always the case. You know, I, all of us have had women in their 20s with ovarian cancer um, or 30s, uh, but it's really uncommon. Most women with ovarian cancer are going to be uh, in their 50s or older. 
you know, with the, with the management of these types of cancers, I would presume it's probably much like what I experienced when I was learning about the breast cancer treatment. It's typically going to be a multi-specialty approach, I assume, with some surgery and some chemotherapy and, po- and radiation potentially. Is that how it flows for those types of patients as well? Well, it depends on the histology. There, there are an awful lot of different types of ovarian cancer. Uh, there are low-grade and borderline cancers as well as high-grade cancers. But usually when we talk about ovarian cancer, we're talking about a high-grade, fast-growing, aggressive cancer. Uh, and for the most part, they're nearly all treated with a combination of surgery and chemotherapy. Now, with you, are are you what what part of that are you going to be managing from your perspective? Is it the medical side? Are you going to be doing some of the surgery yourself? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we do both. Um, in gynecologic oncology, we usually administer the chemotherapy uh, and do the surgery both. Uh, I do have some patients, you know, who have already been going to their medical oncologist for one issue or another, and sometimes they get chemotherapy with their medical oncologist, and then I will do the debulking surgery, and they'll go back to their medical oncologist for more chemotherapy. But for the most part, you know, we do we do both the chemo and the surgery. Is from a survivability standpoint, how does that? How do these types of cancers flow? I mean, I would presume that if you get them caught early and you can begin treatment, that you know that they should be much like breast cancer, very survivable. Is that is that accurate? Yes. I mean, nearly all of the GYN cancers, if they are diagnosed at stage one, have a, a five-year survival upwards of 90%. Um, it's just, you know, that uh, ovarian cancer usually is diagnosed at a later stage. So, um, it and people's prognosis with ovarian cancer is all dependent on their response to their therapy. So most women with ovarian cancer, even advanced stage, will develop a remission and achieve a point where there's no visible, detectable disease. Uh, but unfortunately, the, in most patients, that cancer will come back. So we have to surveil them very closely after their treatment's finished. So they'll keep coming back to you on a six-month or annual basis for, for, from now on, essentially, or close to it. Right. We do very close screening for the first two years. The highest risk of recurrence is two, within two years of their um, completion of therapy. Uh, we do every three months for the first year and then every four months for the second year. So we get very close with our, our cancer patients. I would presume so, but I'm yeah. um, sitting here with you. That, that, that doesn't seem like it would be a terrible thing. So, <laughs> um, you, know, uh, you know, I'm always surprised by how fast our time goes when we're yeah. here on the show. It's great information. So you were talking about, Dr. Dr. Robert Lopez, you were talking about that you were sharing some information with a, a group uh, recently. What kind of information are you, when you're going out to speak with folks, what, what are you typically trying to convey so that they can come away a little bit better educated about their their feminine health needs. Absolutely. Um, recently, in, within the past couple months, I did a presentation for a women's um, community um, talk, and the women were very engaged and very um, interested in learning more about the issues that we spoke of. I just think that a lot of times the issues that they have may be embarrassing to them. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is that we have to educate women and let them know they're not alone. For example, for incontinence, just urinary alone, there are more than 22 million women in the United States that suffers from that. So the first goal for me at these presentations are to just let them know the enormity of the problem. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people and that they're not alone and it's okay to mention it to somebody. Um, And then the next step is to um, let them know that there are different things that could be going on. It's not like a a one size fit all. That there is is a tailored um, 
regimen or um, that can be made for them that fits their needs and get them the quality of life that they want. Um, the other thing which I think a lot of people um, sway from and may seem a little taboo is to talk about their sexual function. You know, that's a big thing in urogynecology. Um, and people just chuck it up, you know, as, you know, maybe I haven't had intercourse for a long time. That's why it's so So it shouldn't really hurt. No, it should be enjoyable. <laughs> right. You know, it should be enjoyable. That's an intimate time with your partner. And there could really be something um, organically wrong with them as right. to why this is going on. It may not be anxiety. Anxiety. It may not be some type of relationship issue or psychological issue. It it really can be something organic going on that can be treated and manageable. I can just recollect there is a young lady that I'd taken care of about five or six years ago, newly um, married, and she couldn't consummate her her marriage because she had so much pain within three or four months of treatment, she came back and said, I'm pregnant, <laughs> oh, <that's, I> mean, <laughs> you know, no, so, and, and so you can make a difference in people's lives by just letting them know, making them feel comfortable to tell, tell you what's going on, assuring them that you will get to the bottom of it, even if it means incorporating some expertise from other um, disciplines. I know that Wellstar yeah. offers a variety of support resources for patients of all types from you know particularly with oncology but I would assume that there are some educational offerings that that a patient in the community could probably take advantage of and obviously Wellstar has got locations kind of spread out both between primary care locations now with you know and their hospital presence uh, around the community so can you talk a little bit about some you know resources like that from a cancer perspective Dr. Carroll and then also you know just from a general women's health that that might be beneficial for someone to know about? Yes, at, at, um, well, within Wellstar, within each hospital, there are, you know, cancer centers that have um, social workers that can help with a lot of the um, kind of da- uh, family management of, of stress with um trying to get the resources that they need and the treatments that they need. There's uh, dietitians. There are um, group discussions, you know, even amongst patients with just ovarian cancer, um, you know, a group of people who could get together and and talk about their symptoms, talk about their feelings, um, and talk about their treatment, um, which is, you know, very comforting for a lot of people. Um, There's also... um, counselors um, at, at each site. So, you know, every, every hospital has their, um, has their own group who can manage and, and help people. How about on the, the ladies, you know, just their For neurologic the health? Or yeah. So basically what Wellstar has done, I'm actually the only urogynecologist at Wellstar. Right. Well. <laughs> one of so, a kind. Yeah, one of a kind, one of a kind. So basically what they've done, they've taken initiative to um, put out some, some type of um, announcements on Facebook and just, you know, I've been able to just lay out the top um four or five conditions that I manage and give um, some information about that and how, you know, where they could be seen. You know, I'm participating in community outreach um, talks. Um, Like I said, I've gone around to physicians' offices to educate them so that they can educate their patients. We've sent out mailers to patients and physician offices just to make them aware because 
honestly, there probably every day in my office, I get a woman that comes in that says, I never knew urogynecology existed. <laughs> and they've done some research on the internet. You know, Wellstar is getting really good about doing some internet based things because most of our patients, that's where they find information. Yeah. So I was just going to say, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the Wellstar's Facebook page and, and initially, you know, I think most people kind of dismiss the social media like Twitter and Facebook as kind of, uh, it's just, you know, people put and post about their mood and, you know, pictures of their food. But pe- but now it's really becoming a great resource, uh, just as much as Google is in a way, Absolutely. to get good um, information straight from the source, you know, from physicians like yourselves who are contributing content out there that can get direct to the patient. And it's not just a, a person that's putting something exciting on a page to try to get, you know, visits on a website. It's literally very useful educational offerings that you can get just by linking up with, uh, you know, Wellstar, for example, on Facebook or Twitter, that they can get current, very important, useful information. Oh, and by the way, there's going to be a, a seminar on Friday. It's free. If you come by, you can hear Dr. Lasagna Roberts talk about, you know, the, the issues of ladies' health. So that kind of thing, I think it's very powerful and it's good to know about. Um, before we run out of time, our, you know, I'll ask each of you, you know, are there a particular point or two that you would really like to try to drive home for the listener out there who either may be a physician that has patients of, of, of you know, these types in their care or maybe a, just a listener in general who themselves uh, is a woman that might potentially face something like this or has a loved one? You know, what, what kind of points would you like to leave the audience with today before we jump off? Um, you, uh, I'm um, as an oncologist, you know, I think it's really important. I have a million people a day, even you know, like nurses and physicians, always ask me, uh, "What what is the one thing you know that you would want to tell you know everybody about uh, about cancer?" And and my big thing is is don't overlook a symptom, especially if it is persistent and worsening. If anything, a skin problem you know, nausea that's been there and is getting worse, bloating, your clothes don't fit like they used to. It may not be that your metabolism is slowing and you're eating a little bit extra, but it may be something more sinister. And those are the kinds of things that definitely need to be evaluated. Don't overlook it. Now, with that patient, should they go and talk to OBGYN, do you think is the best resource to start with if you're a woman that's dealing with some of those kind of somewhat vague symptoms or go to a primary care, do you think? For the most part, you know, go go to whomever they feel comfortable with. You know, usually an established physician, either the OBGYN or primary care doctor, is the first stop. Mm-hmm. And then if they find anything abnormal on exam or labs, then they can, you know, refer them on to further testing. That's great. How about you, Dr. Roberts Lopez? A point that I want to want the the viewer, the listeners to um, take home. I think the important thing for me is to, if there is an issue that's bothering them, don't hesitate to mention it. Don't think that you have to live, um, you know, with a certain condition or certain symptoms and just chuck it up to be, oh, maybe because I'm overweight or you know maybe it's, it's my age. Um, everyone deserves a good quality of life mm-hmm. and. Or more often than not, whatever they're experiencing is correctable. They just have to find the the right person to deal with it. And if they do mention it to somebody, and because I get this as well, if they mention it to a physician and they just kind of blow it, you know, blow it off, please get a second and third opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, that is so important. That's a that's a message that's certainly been resonating as we've been doing Top Docs Radio now. We've had several panel shows with, you know, specialists of all types, and, and that's a recurring theme, and that is, you know, 
it's great that you like your physician. It's you know, and have a rapport where you really trust what they're saying to you. And I think that that's got great value. But when we're talking about issues that can have such a huge impact on your quality of life, whether it's a diabetic patient that might be facing amputation or a patient that could potentially be developing a, a cancer that needs to be treated sooner than later, or in your case, uh, something that's not cancerous, but I, I can't live my life well because I have to figure out where the next bathroom is. I can't tell you how many patients I've, I've learned of more recently that are dealing with that. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, getting a second opinion, if, if you're, you know, not seeing progress and you're talking to somebody about it, then I, I, I agree with your statement to see somebody else just to just to get another set of eyes and, mm-hmm. and, and mind, th- you know, thinking about your problem just because you might actually be right around the corner, literally <laughs> absolutely from a from a solution that is mm-hmm. isn't even all that severe it may not be surgery. It may just be a couple of simple things or a medical treatment that can help you and get your life back. So I'm very absolutely. glad that you're here to be able to share this kind of information with people and, and maybe, you know, change a few lives by the information that you're sharing. Um, well, you know, I know we got the the website. That's the that's the you know good way for people to find you. You know, now being part of the Wellstar Physician Group, obviously people can go on to wellstar.org and then do physician searches. Uh, Dr. Amy Carroll is easy to find, and and so is Dr. Lasagna Roberts uh, Lopez. Uh, so please make sure that's a resource that you turn to. There's uh, obviously great information there about the various support groups that uh, and support resources that you mentioned. Uh, link up with us on uh, on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash topdocsonbrx. We're also on Twitter at topdocsonbrx. We like to share information about the uh, that's put out by the guests. So you know when you link up with us, you kind of link up with our guests as well. So we make sure we share information there. Both of you are are very busy physicians that have patients that are needing and wanting to come and see you. So I want to say thank you very much for taking time out of your office to come here and share this information. I'm sure it was going to be useful for somebody out there in the community, and we're very glad to share it. Thanks again to you, and uh, we'll see you all next week on Top Doc, same time, same place. Thank you, Sia. Thank you.